0: Are we good? Okay. Well, thank you for joining the course. Some of you who are listening in are signed up for this for credit. Others are listening in because you have an interest in the material. Welcome to all of you, and thank you for being here. Um, I want to introduce the structure of the course. First of all, what is the great debate? This is a term I coined, so don't go searching through the literature looking for it. But it's a set of theological and philosophical disputes about miracles, prophecy, and the existence of God that occurred in the wake of the Deist Controversy. The Deist Controversy really took place largely from the last decade of the 1600s through about the year 1760. David Hume's uh, essay of miracles was a major contribution to the Deist Controversy, and that was published in his philosophical essays in 1748 later renamed the Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding. That may be the title by which you're more familiar with it. So we're going to pick up where the class from last summer left off at the end of the Deist Controversy and trace the ongoing debates through the succeeding century and a half. So although I've said this is about the 19th century, we will need to pick up the thread a little bit earlier than that in order to understand how this played out. Unlike the Deist Controversy, This debate spreads out across a wider surface area. It is not an English phenomenon exclusively. We find it throughout Europe, particularly in France and Germany, but also in Holland. And we find it occurring in America as well. For our purposes, I've chosen to organize the course into seven broad controversies. Each of these is initiated by a distinctive type of skeptical attack on the grounds of revealed religion. I want to stress these are convenient categories. Not all of them are schools of thought, so we may find two people categorized under the same header who would have had quite significant disagreements with one another. Some of them stretch across space and time, so populist skepticism, as you will see, is a phenomenon that recurs on several continents, and we'll be able to trace that throughout the entirety of the 19th century. But most of the major critics of Special Divine Action fall, broadly speaking, into one or another of these categories. There are a few who are hard to pigeonhole, and we won't try overly hard to do that. So, quickly now, and this is particularly for the benefit of those who are taking the course for credit and want to be thinking now about possible paper topics, I want to do an overview of these seven different skeptical challenges. We're going to start with continental skepticism. This is centered in France and is heavily influenced by English deism, as we will see. There are a whole raft of English deists whose works are translated into French and sold in France, and they make an enormous impact on the French, far greater proportionally than the impact that they made in England itself. We'll talk about the reasons for that when we come back to this on Thursday. There are two phases to continental skepticism. There's a deistical phase with people like Fontenelle, Voltaire, and Rousseau, who actually believe in some kind of god, just not the god of traditional religion. And then there's an atheistical phase, which is more dominated by the philosophers who wrote the encyclopedia, Condillac, Helvetius, and Dolbach, and they are avowedly atheistical, not merely deistical, and in fact, English deists were rather surprised by the strength of out-and-out atheism in France. Their work laid the foundation for the French Revolution, although Rousseau's work was also considered to be by some of the Bible of the French Revolution. And for a brief period in France, the practice of the Christian religion itself was formally abolished. Uh, That was a cautionary tale. We had two revolutions going on there at the end of the 18th century, the American and the French, and they were worlds apart. The differences between them are very important from a historical point of view, but we will not be looking at the history except insofar as it intersects with our skeptical challenges. A different kind of skeptical challenge is what I've called urbane skepticism. This is predominantly an English phenomenon and is in some ways an extension of the deist controversy. In its early phase, it relies on irony and disguised critique rather than, for example, the vicious satire of Voltaire. Uh, Dodwell and Hume during the deist controversy exhibited this, but it's most fully exhibited in Edward Gibbon's uh, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, where in chapter 15 in particular, he attempts to explain the rise of Christianity without any appeal to special divine action, without any appeal to the resurrection or miracles. Um, This tone of writing, which is not vicious and angry, but rather detached and sometimes ironic, we can see recurring through English thought in the 19th century. John Stuart Mill and Matthew Arnold are two examples of this, although they use less irony and more just straightforward assertion. There's a very famous line from Matthew Arnold's work, Literature and Dogma, uh, which actually comes up in the fiction literature of the 19th century, and that is, miracles do not happen. So, we'll see these urbane English skeptics as a type who will recur Uh, detached more or less from particular philosophical schools of thought or in the case of Mill, uh, more or less creating a school of thought around his voluminous works. So that's another one of the challenges that we'll be looking at. Next, populist skepticism. This has its roots in the English deists Annette and Chubb. It's largely an American and English phenomenon. It was originally deistic but later largely atheistics. It's characterized by a certain coarseness of tone, little or no formal scholarship, sometimes even pseudo-scholarship as we will see. And it's directed at the working classes initially where it was enormously popular, but a curious phenomenon on at least the American side of this is that it was very popular among university students and so that we'll see When we come to look at Yale around the year 1800, when Timothy Dwight became president of Yale, it was so popular on undergraduate campuses that students took the names of prominent populist skeptics like Payne for themselves and went around addressing themselves in this way, uh, much to the chagrin of some of the more orthodox people attending Yale at that time. This phenomenon stretches across the 19th century. You'll see it in Thomas Paine's works, also in the works of Richard Carlyle, who published some regular newspapers and magazines of skepticism and who published Paine's works and was actually prosecuted for having published Paine's works. Uh, In America, you see it in Ethan Allen, in later 19th century Britain, Ian Charles Bradlaugh, who before he became a member of parliament, went around doing debates and lectures under the name Iconoclast. And of course, famously on the American side, Robert Ingersoll, who was a barrister and wrote a great deal of populist skepticism, not heavy works of scholarship, but designed to rouse up people who had not heard these kinds of attacks on revealed religion before. Then there's something quite different, scholarly skepticism, uh, centered in Germany, spreading outward from there. In its first phase, it's very heavily influenced by Hume, especially Hume's anti-supernaturalism, and by some of the older deists like Matthew Tyndall. But And this is what's distinctive about it and why I've separated it off from a later German kind of skepticism. It's influenced very little by Hegel. As we'll see, there's a different strand of skepticism also uh, originating in in Germany that is very heavily influenced by Hegelian ideas. This branch of it, not so much. Uh, There are German writers like Ray whose work was republished by Lessing, who give an impetus to the movement. But it really comes to its full flower in Strauss's Life of Jesus, first published in German in 1835 and going through multiple editions. The fourth edition of Strauss's Leben Jesu was translated into English by George Eliot, the novelist whose real name was Marianne Evans, and she was a member of a skeptical group at the time. The translation was actually begun, I believe, by Charles Hennell, but completed by Evans. There's a second flowering of this in the work of the French Orientalist Ernest Renan, who wrote two books, The Life of Jesus and The Apostles. Again, although he was familiar with the work of Hegel, his writing does not show that heavy-handed Hegelian influence that we'll find in some of the other skeptics. So this is a phenomenon uh, arising in Germany and quite scandalous at the time, when Strauss's Life of Jesus was first published, someone immediately wrote a review of it, calling it the most pestilential book ever vomited from the jaws of hell, uh, which abused Strauss somewhat. So we'll be looking at some of that when we are studying scholarly skepticism of this stripe. Transcendental skepticism is a different sort of skepticism, and something that we need to take a close look at. This is centered in the United States, and particularly at Harvard, and is associated with the movement sometimes known as New England Transcendentalism. You'll think of people like Emerson and Thoreau and Shanning as major uh, types of that. But the American Unitarians were deeply divided. There was a radical group, Emerson and Ripley and Hedge and Putnam uh, are good examples of that, heavily influenced by German critical scholarship and deeply anti-supernatural. On the other hand, they were opposed by, if I may use the phrase without irony, conservative Unitarians like Andrews Norton and uh, Andrew Preston Peabody and John Gorham Palfrey who wrote vigorously against them and they pretty much split the Unitarian movement down the middle. It's very interesting to see how the history of that played out Um, Hume's anti-supernaturalism had, of course, deeply affected German scholarship and through the German scholarship affected people like Emerson. Emerson's Divinity School Address, which we'll be reading, is one of the most important pieces of that time and of this school. So that's a, uh, just at the very beginning of the Victorian era in England, we have this transcendental skepticism, which then is a movement that spans the rest of the century as well. Establishment skepticism. This is a distinctively British phenomenon, because that's where the Anglican Church was established by law. This controversy came to a head in the 1860s for two reasons. First, there was the publication of a group of essays by seven British scholars called Essays and Reviews. These were liberal churchmen, and their work was scandalous. There were attempts made to institute regulations that would prevent people with such views from holding positions at university. Uh, That led to a protracted legal squabble. Also in 1863, uh, Bishop John Colenso, the Bishop of Natal, began publishing some skeptical works on the Pentateuch in which he raised questions about the historicity of the historical accounts given in the first five books of the Old Testament. And that also raised controversies, partly religious, partly political, particularly since Colenso was drawing his salary from the state because he was a bishop in the established church. So the controversies about established skepticism form another distinctive branch of the attacks on traditional views of miracles and prophecy as evidences for the Christian religion and in particular on its historical affidavits. Finally, Dutch and German skepticism uh, initiated by the work of Ferdinand Christian Bauer. This kind of skepticism started a school of thought at Tübingen and therefore is sometimes referred to as the work of the Tübingen school, but Bauer and students like Hilgenfeld and Volkmar wrote Vast treatises critiquing the historicity both of the Old Testament and of the New. The distinctive features of this are that it's very heavily influenced by Hume's anti-supernaturalism and also extraordinarily heavily influenced by Hegel's idea of historical progress through a synthesis of opposites, through a thesis, an antithesis that is its opposite, a struggle between them, a new synthesis arising out of that, a new antithesis arising to that synthesis, and so this pattern of thinking dominates the structure of their interpretation of church history and indeed of world history. Uh, this is rooted, uh, sorry, yeah, that last bit on that slide needs to be uh, xed out. This actually comes to flower in England in the work of Walter Castle's, a work called Supernatural Religion, and that was originally published anonymously. Uh, Wagging Tongues attributed it to this or that bishop, which increased its circulation, though it was falsely so attributed. And so that drew down the uh, scholarly critique of some of the greatest scholars of the 19th century, Brooke Faust Westcott and, above all, J.B. Lightfoot and so we'll look at some of Lightfoot's work in response to castles as we go there. But we also have uh, some examination of Bauer's particular view by Alexander Balmain Bruce. So we'll be reading some people on both sides of that. That's an overview of the main skeptical schools of thought that we will be investigating.